Hello and welcome to the Six Ways from Sunday podcast. Uh, we are just recently kicked off a sixth season of the podcast and today I'm on Zoom with a guest that I'm so excited to, to hear her story. Uh, please welcome Shandy Blaken. Shandy, thank you for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Ben. Shandy, you are a, a public speaker, um, you are a poet, you are a community leader, you have so many different roles and we will, I'm sure, explore a bunch of those and as well as your own personal uh, spiritual journey through uh, our conversation today. But we were talking back and forth a little bit by email about mm-hmm. how to kind of shape this conversation. And then I was looking at some of your Instagram uh, content and you are an incredible poet. Oh, thank you. I, I would love to to kind of start there. How, what got you into poetry? Well, that's a, a fun and complicated question. So I grew up in let's call it a very conservative evangelical world. I was homeschooled. And when I was younger, uh, my family chose to go a little bit of a divergent path in terms of our faith. So we didn't attend church. We sort of explored home church and different variations of gathering together. And so some of my childhood was a little bit isolated and it could be lonely at times. And so I did what many bright little girls do, and I would just read constantly, and that led to writing. And I believe that the first poem I ever wrote was when I was around eight or nine years old, and I brought it to my mom, and my mom was in a little bit of shock, and she brought it to my dad, and my dad immediately started crying. Wow. And so it was it was a very interesting introduction to to the realization that the way I expressed myself could really profoundly emotionally impact people. And so that then became both a public and a very quiet avenue for me to process how I saw the world and my place in the world. And because I like to be very precise and careful about the way that I use my words, because I understand the power and the impact that they have. um, I sent you a list of questions about this, conversation that we're going to have together because I wanted to just have some time to reflect on what we were going to talk about. Mm. And that actually organically led to a poem that I wrote waiting for the bus. So in the two minutes before the bus arrived, um, I wrote a poem sort of about my faith journey and who I am now coming from the background that it came from. And I would love to share it with you if you'd like to hear it. I would love to hear it and have you share that with our listeners. Thank you. Oh, wonderful. So I will first set it up with a little bit of context in terms of language, because I'm going to use one of my favorite concepts that I came across in university when I was taking a course on poetry. Um, And it's called a palimpsest. Do you know what a palimpsest is? No, I don't think I've ever heard the term before. Okay, so... This does tie into Christianity and the Bible. Um, In the past, when they were writing everything down on scrolls, and it was usually vellum or it would be sheepskin or something, the vellum was very, very precious, and there wasn't a lot of it because we weren't mass-producing paper. And so if you needed to write something and you had an old scroll and you decided that what was on it wasn't really necessary anymore, you would scrape off the previous writing and then you would write over top of that. 
But inevitably, that's not a perfect system. And so what would happen is you would have your new text layered over your old text, but some of the old text would still be visible through. And that's called a palimpsest, where you see the old kind of visible underneath the new. And you've really created a third thing there. Wow. I yeah. love that. And so one of my assignments in the course that I took in university was to create a palimpsest. And so our university instructor brought in a billion old books that she had found at a garage <laughs> sale and gave them to us. And she said, I know this is going to offend some of you, but I would like you to just destroy these books in the assignments that I give to you and use them in any way you see fit. And so what I did was I took a page of the book and then I put it through my printer and I wrote palimpsest. And then I did that like five times. So you have this page of books, you have the original text. And then on top of that layered over and over are the words palimpsest. Oh, that's cool. And I so hope, I hope you have that on display somewhere <laughs> because that sounds like a really neat, it's a well, great story. It's, it's part of an art journal that I still have. I could take it out and put it in a frame. Actually, I might do that because it's a very fun piece. <laughs> um, but all of that to say that this piece that I wrote is titled palimpsest. Awesome. Thank you for the backstory on that. <laughs> You're welcome. I am the night sky, canvas stretched so taut that pen pricks have littered me with endless stars. Dots of light press through a vast expanse, illuminating words layered like leaves on the forest floor. The reverberations of the wind that was singing through the soil even now. And like vellum so carefully scraped against the sharp edges of divine, a wineskin repurposed again and again. I am every story I have ever been told, every word I have ever written. And still, I am none of them. I am both the whispers rising up and this new thing that rattles gently. Ezekiel's bones, the symphony of each new breath, afloat this desert stream. These still waters I have found, still waters I have tended, still the remnants rise up, do justly, walk humbly, love mercy. In the beginning were the words, and like clay they crumble and crack between my fingers, falling like rain. Scattered stars, these words. I press the pen again. Let there be light. Oh, that gives me chills. That's beautiful, Shandy. Thank you. Thank you for sharing it. You, um, you wrote this, you said, at a bus stop just like quickly yeah yeah it, in the two minutes before the bus came yeah um i had started another poem trying to express these same words earlier that morning and then i was like no no this isn't right i don't like this um and so i was just rushing to the bus not really thinking about anything in particular and then i stopped and i was like oh the bus is a few minutes away maybe i'll try again and it just came and then i was like oh the bus is here and so i just said to jump on the bus wow that's, un that's unreal but oh, I, thank you i know that creativity can strike mm -hmm. hard and fast and then just boom you know a whole song is written or you see a whole vision for for a, a screenplay or a, a theater production or whatever it is like people who create can have whole entities of things kind of just come into their mind almost and then it's just getting it out right like just quickly writing it down and just kind of flows through you and that's that's a beautiful experience to go through yeah it, it's very joyful it can also be very painful for me it often feels like i am birthing or or growing the pieces i write um from mm. germination to when they finally unfurl and push through the soil and if i 
preempt it if I write too quickly. Um, what comes out is beautiful because I've been doing this and, and working on my craft for a very long time. And so I have the ability to make words sound nice, but it always feels very hollow. Like there's just like this mm. shiny patina. Um, and if I want something that is moving and beautiful, I have to sit with it and it feels sort of like the words are pressing up beneath my skin and I can feel them there. And I, I want to get them out, but I have to be patient with it mm. and give it the time to grow. And so I feel like this poem has been growing in me for the past few months. And then you reaching out to me and the conversation we had over email was just the right prompt that allowed the words to take shape. Wow. That's unbelievable. There's there's a lot of imagery in this poem that, for me anyway, as I'm hearing it, and I um, was kind of looking up at the ceiling as I was listening to you and just had a lot of, it, for me, it brought a lot of imagery that was very peaceful, like you talking about still mm -hmm. waters and this tight canvas of a night sky with the pinpricks of stars coming through. And, and I have a lot of really happy memories of like staring up at the at the stars, uh, at the lake where our family would go uh, every summer, or um, you know, being beside really calm water, and just for, so for me, it, I was picturing a lot of really peaceful um, scenes. Um, and you talked about how through the process of creation of uh, of writing poetry, it can be um, healing and it can also be very painful. Mm -hmm. For for you, does this poem? represent sort of part of that journey towards healing and and that's where some of that peaceful imagery comes in or or what would you say about that if i were to talk like a therapist i think that i would say that this poem is an example of integration in that in writing this poem what i am trying to express is that i I cannot separate or divorce myself from the context that I grew up in. I grew up in a very conservative evangelical world. And despite the fact that the way my family chose to express our faith was unique in evangelical circles, um, it was also very ordinary in that our theology and the things that I was exposed to were very ordinary. I grew up listening to Adventures in Odyssey. I've gone on a Brio missions trip. I received the Brio magazine from Focus on the Family. I'm very much a Focus on the Family child. And when I was doing math at home of my own volition, I would listen to Chuck Swindoll um, preaching. Like I, I had a very ordinary basis for my faith in many ways. And so despite the fact that to my knowledge, I have never read the Bible all the way through. I have read many books of the Bible repeatedly and my mom read the Bible all the way through to my siblings and I a multitude of times in my childhood. And so I'm sure you noticed in this poem, there are, and I don't even know how many, many countless references to scripture, because even though I cannot tell you the last time I opened a Bible, it would be over a decade I am still the person that was raised in this particular faith world. And so it still imbues everything that I do. And to the point where 
there are many other people who to this day still think of me as being a Christian, even though I don't think of myself as being one simply because this is the language that I use when I write. And because I care very deeply about queer thriving and trying to undo some of the damage that Christianity has done in the queer community, I am very often returning to Christian spaces such as this one to have these kinds of conversations. Wow. I love that. So, uh, and I'm glad that you, um, that you mentioned, so we're, we're celebrating pride month right now Mm -hmm. and you sort of live at this really interesting, um, crossroads or intersection of faith and, uh, queer celebration and advocating for, for queer rights and, um, protection of, you know, thinking about children growing up in Mm -hmm. Christian, um, settings that, uh, where there's a lot of damage still happening and Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of change needed. I would love to, to, um, steer this conversation a little bit towards, uh, the need for that, your thoughts on that, um, how maybe a good place to start is how how are you celebrating pride month this june and in lethbridge where you live and and what where do we where do we enter that as a as a church not as an evangelical denomination or a united church denomination but just as mm-hmm. christianity what is pride's place in that that's a very good question um Sorry, I, I know I threw like four no, questions no, it, at you it, all at okay. once, but it, it's any okay. of those as a, as a starting point. So how am I celebrating Pride Month? I would say that this month has felt less and less celebratory to me the longer I have been out. If we were to quantify when I was officially out, although I never officially did come out very intentionally, I would say that that would have been 2014. And so we're coming, we're just a year away from it having been a decade since I came out. Mm. And when I first came out, because I grew up in a world that had so expertly erased queerness, I had no real concept of queer history or the existence of queerness. And so stumbling into this world of queerness, I was in shock and awe at how far it felt the world had come compared to what I grew up with. And so it was exciting and it was beautiful and it was celebratory and, and look at all these things we have. And then as I began to do work, both in listening and learning queer history and learning from queer leaders in my community, as I moved to Lethbridge with my wife and then starting to do that work myself, that celebration began to take on nuance and some of the threads of nuance that were woven into that was an understanding of how things can look like they progressed on the surface while below the surface having not really materially changed for those who've been most intentionally marginalized by the world, specifically um, the trans community. And when you look at the intersections of Black trans women and Indigenous trans women and women of color. Uh, I don't think that if Marsha P. Johnson were still with us today, that her lived experience really would have changed from 
when the first brick was thrown at Stonewall to today, I think that her experience would have stayed very much the same. Um, whereas the experience of many white gays and lesbians did in fact progress and become much better, but that was very much at the cost and the expense of the trans community. Mm. And so the longer I've been out, um, that has also then brought in threads of grief. And so I would say that last year was when I started to feel afraid um, of marching, specifically in Lethbridge. I I carried fear with me um, ever since I came out, even with that joy and the sense that we had made a lot of progress. Uh, my wife and I were married in June in 2016, and... We were married in the morning and we went to bed and we got up the next morning and we read on the news that the pulse shooting had happened. Oh my and um, my wife is from Florida. And so it felt very, very intimate and personal mm. that had we not found each other, had she not moved to Canada to be with me, there was an exceptionally high likelihood that she would have been at Pulse that night. And so it is a complicated thing to understand that joy is integral to change and to maintaining hope and to healing our communities. And that joy is the thing that is sustainable and that drives us forward. And so there is a time to celebrate and we need to celebrate. But the idea of Pride Month as if it were some sort of holiday um, rubs me the wrong way because just putting a rainbow sticker in your window for a month because it's fun and it has carnival vibes um, does not speak to the intensification of violence and fear that's being experienced by our community. So I would say I'm not really celebrating Pride Month this year. I am experiencing a lot of grief and reflection and feeling very protective of my community and these people that I love and wanting to shield them from the vitriol that increases whenever our visibility increases. And so also struggling with the feeling that often our visibility um, feels more like a target being painted on our backs. Mm. Yeah. And this past Saturday, I had a chance to Co out in support of a reading with royalty event that was happening at one of the branches of our public library here in Lethbridge. And a handful of protesters showed up. Um, I believe that this year is the first time that we've seen protesters show up. And I was just observing some of their signs. And they they said things like stop grooming and sexualizing children and protect the kids. And I it was a very interesting contrast with me being inside with the Reading Earth Royalty event. Um, there were about 175 people that came out to the event to support it. So it was 
a very big difference between the amount of protesters and the amount of people that came out in support. But we're singing the wheels on the bus and the hokey pokey um, inside and outside. People are holding up signs saying, protect the children. (laughs) And, And it was just so interesting to me to see that because I was that child. I grew up in a world where I did not know about queerness or transness. Um, I think that I maybe heard the word homosexuality three or four times before I was 18. I heard the word gay maybe a little bit more than that, but always as a bad word, as a slur that was completely divorced from context. So I had no idea Mm -hmm. what it meant. Yeah, other you were than, hearing about it through the context yeah. of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and the Old not, Testament. Not even that, really. Okay. Because my mother, being a good mother, when she read those stories to us, very much edited that. So we weren't oh, being wow. told that. And then as I was older and reading the scripture was something I did on my own, I know that I read those stories, but because I had no context for it, you're just reading it and they're just words. It doesn't yeah, mean anything. Sure. And so I have, it felt in many ways like I was split in two, like I was living as two people because I had zero context for anything. I didn't know what anything meant. And yet at the same time, when I was moving into my teens, I started to experience my queerness without having any name for it and feeling a lot of shame about that and hiding that I I can remember being 18 and hiding in my literal closet at night with my laptop and my headphones quietly watching the l word um, (laughs) until I became too ashamed of it and so I'm watching the l word and I'm I'm feeling things but I can't name what I'm feeling And if you had asked me if what I was feeling was same-sex attraction, um, I would not have said yes. I I can remember even going to Exodus's website um, because Exodus was the big um, conversion therapy organization at the time and reading through all of their material and coming to the conclusion that I obviously was not what they were talking about because this did not reflect my experience at all. Wow. Okay. And so I grew up in the world that these protesters on Saturday seem to want to bring back where the language and the context and the history is entirely erased. And yes, you can do that, um, but it won't stop your children from being queer. Mm. And that lack of context will only serve to be a well of confusion and shame mm. and fear. pain and, and fear. Yeah, a lot of fear. It it felt a lot of my life like I was playing a part. I would I would put on makeup and I would wear a dress and I would feel like a clown and I I didn't know why I was feeling that way. And there were always these questions in the back of my head. Do do other girls feel like this? Does everyone feel like they're just playing a role? Um, And it wasn't until I was 22 and I lost someone that I had fallen deeply in love with without realizing what had happened. 
Mm. Um, but I lost her. And suddenly I was profoundly heartbroken and it was like being plunged into a bath of ice water because I was like, oh, that was love. And mm. I was suddenly faced with the realization that, oh my God, this is what being gay is, that I loved this woman so deeply and she loved me and we would laugh together. And every time I was with her, every time I would walk into a room and she would be there, I would suddenly feel at home and I would feel safe and I would feel at peace and the chaos of the world would feel like it disappeared. And then the loss of her was so stark because I realized that if I wanted to feel that way again, the only choice was that God would then have to hate me and I would lose God. Oh my goodness. And so there was a period of a couple of years where it was so painful because I felt like I was choosing between feeling like my skin fit and I could laugh and experience joy in a way that I had never had access to. Or I could lose the God that I had up to that point spent two decades of my life wildly and passionately chasing and trusting and and being so devoted to to the point where I had queer friends when I was in my teens and I would tell them that they were confused. I was I was a poster child. I did everything you were supposed to do. And even having queer friends in my teens, I was so repressed and so devoid of context that it meant nothing to me. I did I knew that I felt closer to them than I did to other people, hmm. but I absolutely never in a million years would have told you that I was queer. Wow. Do you think that that is more common than most of us realize, especially in um, families or uh, faith context or faith communities where children are growing up with just a vacuum of understanding of queerness? That there are a lot of kids that are queer and just have literally have no idea, even into like late teens. Or do you think that, that we're, we've made enough progress that we're that even though the kids who have people in their lives that are literally trying to raise them where they're under a rock and they're never experiencing it, that they're with social media now and the internet and that try as parents might to shelter their kids from it, in 2023, it's almost an impossible task? Or do you, like... I, I I would assume I mean, that, that there are a lot of people that would yeah. relate to your story, Shandy, and that, there, that there'd be so many people, even like young kids now that are in Canada, let alone I mean, mm-hmm. the context of other uh, parts of the world, but that even just in our rural, rural Alberta communities that are growing up super conservative, um, you know, uh, theology and have people in their lives that are, uh, intentionally trying to create this narrative that like, like you said, you're just confused. Um, you just need to, or, I mean, we, and we still have, um, I mean, conversion therapy is something that we've, I've talked with, uh, well, 
your friend Pam Rocker, mm -hmm. who introduced mm -hmm. me to you and uh, made this connection possible. Thank you, Pam. Uh, Pam and I talked about conversion therapy and how mm -hmm. we are making progress towards banning that in different parts of Canada. But there is still a very definite intention uh, to eradicate. Like in a, their last episode, Victoria spoke about that. You know, there is a group of people who literally want trans women to not exist or trans people to mm -hmm. just not exist. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there, there is an agenda and uh, a group of people that have this mindset of we need to eradicate this, this way of being, this way of living, mm -hmm. and that it's just a choice. You know, you're just, well, mm -hmm. you're just confused or you're just choosing to, to date or to marry someone of the same sex, mm -hmm. but you know, the way God intends it to be is a man and a woman. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the only valid form of love or of a relationship, mm -hmm. which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, I would not be surprised if many people have a story that is similar to mine. I feel like part of mine was wrapped up in my body's understanding of how unsafe I would have been had I recognized it and expressed it and so my body protected me from that knowledge from that understanding of myself until I was old enough and in a place where it was safer for me to do so and even doing that um resulted in a profound loss of community for me mm. and so it would not surprise me at all if there are other kids and adults out there who have a similar story I know that for me if I had been given the opportunity to hear stories and see queerness as being holy and part of God's plan for healthy communities and healthy relationships I don't know that I would have walked away from my faith the way I inevitably did mm -hmm. when I did come out because the faith that I had grown up with was so stark in its commitment to the fact that if you chose queerness, you were rejecting God that I said, okay, this is the choice that I have to make. And so I walked away very quietly. I did not loudly come out. I had some small conversations with family, but nothing that was ever big or in anyone's faces. And I just slowly started ghosting the world that I came from. And I let relationships slip away and I started deleting people from social media. And I just sort of slowly vanished because that was the choice that I felt was given to me and I didn't see the point in having a big fight about my right to stay because the world that I had grown up in made it very clear there was no place for me wow. and so I left yeah and I have a lot of friends and people that I love deeply and respect who who did make the choice to stay and to fight and um, are having profound impacts on Christianity in North America and I'm I'm so proud of them and I see that 
their faith has grown and changed and encompassed their queerness. And it's, it's just beautiful, but I have no desire for that anymore. I have no real interest in that. Um, I, I have people sometimes try to pull me into theological conversations or ask me questions or my perspective. And I mean, obviously I have a perspective and an opinion, but I don't feel like it really matters or has a lot of value because I'm just not interested. What I am interested in Mm -hmm. is the safety and the thriving of the people in those faith contexts. And that is what led me to Pam Rocker and um, through Pam um, and her blessing and her guidance, I started the coming out in faith monologues in Lethbridge and I offered them three times before the pandemic struck. So I offered them in 2017, 2018, and 2019. And that was work that I did very closely with McKillop United Church. And we endeavored and hoped to build a bridge between the queer and faith communities in Lethbridge just to start conversations like this. Um, Mm -hmm. We didn't have any real agenda as to changed hearts and minds, quote unquote, um, it was more to just create a space to acknowledge the fact that there are queer people in every community of faith. There always have been, there always will be. And no matter how much you silence them, that does not stop them from existing. All it does (laughs) is it stops them from thriving and oftentimes from living because I made a very hard, very painful choice where I walked away from my faith. So this, the death that I chose was the death of my faith. Um, but there are those who cannot choose that. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And so they choose um, the death should be themselves. And, and if their ability want, to live live a full life yeah. of being who they are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that can look like a life of profound repression and pain. Um, It can look like um, suicide, but ultimately it, it looks like just the antithesis of what I was told the gospel was. It's not life giving. And so I wanted to work with anyone who would work with me to create the space. So the first year we did it alongside a conference that we organized called Unabridged. Ooh. And we invited various faith leaders to speak. Um, and the opening of that conference was the first coming out in faith monologues. And I believe that for that, we had 150 people attend that first oh, wow. performance, which okay blew me away (laughs) um and it was perhaps one of the most holy and divine experiences i have ever had to be in this room of people with this group of other queer individuals who came from different faith communities and different walks of life and they shared their stories and some like me had walked away from their faith and some still held their faith. Yeah. But the stories of their queerness and, and the profundity of that. And it was 
it was an intoxicating feeling to, to watch this happening in front of me, this thing that had been so denied me that I didn't even know was possible. Um, and at that first coming out in faith monologues and that first um, conference that we put on, I met a pastor in town from a conservative congregation and that fostered a relationship that we still hold to this day. We will occasionally email each other. Um, We went for a walk a couple months ago and that pastor is on a journey right now of trying to push their own faith community towards affirmation, which um, is very meaningful to me to know that my work has had an impact but as as amazing as that is, um, that's not why I continue to do it. Why I continue to do it was to give a space for people to work towards some of that integration where they finally had a space where they could wrestle with, where they could reflect on um, joyfully or angrily or grieve Um, what it looked like to be a person of faith and queer at the same time. Mm. And the thing I told every single one of my performers is I do not care if come the day you decide not to walk on the stage. I don't care if we sit there for seven minutes and everyone has to sit for your spot in silence. I want them to sit in that uncomfortable silence um, until the next performer comes on. Like we're not going to pretend you weren't going to go. We're just going to let them sit in silence because Mm. This process is for you, is for your healing, is for your integration, is for you to finally be given a space where you can choose whether or not you tell your story. And I never had someone choose not to tell their story, but I I made it very clear from the beginning that I wasn't creating a performance. This wasn't entertainment. Right. And there was no obligation. Um, this was about giving my performers, my community, a chance to tell a story that is never told. Right. So and, is it, would it be fair to say, Shandy, that for, it's, what I'm hearing is that it, for you, this was not about setting out to create uh, organizational level transformational change or to push the, you know, various church and faith communities in Lethbridge uh, to change their thinking. This was a, an opportunity for individuals to experience transformation and like you said, uh, integration and healing. I mean, the, those other things are always in the back of my mind. Sure. And I'm not um, unaware of the impact of personal stories. And so I was aware that there could be change. But I didn't want to put that pressure on myself. I didn't mm. want to put the pressure on the people that were telling the stories. Like, yes, share your trauma, mind deep. Um, the more you can cry on stage, the more change we can enact. No, <laughs> uh, if you yeah. if you need to witness someone else's trauma to change, um, I, I'm glad that it moved you and that you're moving towards change. But our trauma is not meant to be the impetus of change. That should come from the knowledge that everybody is beautiful and sacred as they are. Um, Mm -hmm. I shouldn't need to open up my wounds to make you believe in my humanity. And so I refused to approach any of the three um, 
monologues like that. I wanted it to be very intentionally a space where people had access to consent, to say yes, to say no, to tell their story in their own words in a way that they had never had before. And how many uh, monologues did you have in the first coming out in faith? I believe that it was eight. Um, I always tried to do between seven and eight. So I think in total I had... I don't know, it was probably like 26 individuals over those three or something like that. Wow. And then I usually That's brought awesome. um, a, a musical guest who was usually a queer performer. And then through that work, I was also contracted by Queer Arts um, YYC in Calgary to then um, produce the coming out monologues for Lesbridge Pride. And so I did that for a couple of years too. And um, in times of crisis where I didn't have enough performers, I would kind of swap them back and forth. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But I, I helped facilitate probably around 30 or 40 individual stories being told in Lethbridge over that three-year period. Wow. And I'm sure some of these people are not um, poets like yourself. They've maybe never been on a stage public speaking, which you're more familiar with that, um, mm -hmm. that experience. So for some of these folks, I'm sure it was a terrifying thing just to be out uh, speaking, let alone mm -hmm. sharing... Mm -hmm their coming out story. Like, this sounds like a perfect recipe to like absolutely terrify someone. Oh, oh for sure. And <laughs> um, because I didn't approach it as a performance, um, I told people that if they wanted to memorize it, they could memorize it. If they wanted to bring hmm. a sheet of paper on stage with them. So I had someone who, because they felt like they wouldn't be able to remember everything. Um, what they did is they wrote their story out like a storybook and then they turned it into a book and they sat on a chair on stage and they read it as if they were reading a story to the audience oh, and that was cool. so fantastic um but what was really exciting and beautiful for me to see is you're correct not everybody was a poet I had some slam poets do some absolutely incredible stuff but it didn't matter if people had experienced public speaking or if they had had experience writing something poetically just the act of taking the time to think about and then tell their story meant that each story was so unique and so profoundly beautiful in its uniqueness um, that I think it was, and I hope that it was really empowering because everybody learned that they didn't have to have the ability to write a poem in two minutes before the bus came. Um, to tell their story and for it to be beautiful and meaningful and um, to be heard. What I really mm. wanted was for people to have the chance to be heard. And so uh, at the coming out with these monologues, we, as much as we could, um, at least for two of the performances um, in 2017 and 2018, we had therapists in town volunteer um, to be there just in case people needed emotional support. Um, because I was very focused on creating an environment where we could tell the truth and there not be the backlash. Mm -hmm. And how was it received? You said there was about 150 people in the audience that first Then the first year. one, yeah. And then I think the second year we moved to location. Um, and I think that one there was about 75. And then the third year there was 
just a lot happening. And so I think that one, the audience was only like 30 or 40 people. Um, but each time the reception was very good. There was, no one was ever angry or confrontational. I know that there are people who came who were not necessarily affirming and were just coming out of curiosity and to learn. Um, but it was all very respectful and if they had thoughts about it, they didn't say anything. Hmm. Um, and if they had, then there there was the door and I would have shown them to it. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I love the way the event was holding space, but you on a personal level, it's clear that your intention is, you're so deliberate about holding space for each of those, mm -hmm. um, each of those stories and each of those humans to mm -hmm. just be safe and to have this opportunity if they were ready to to share some of that story yeah and what was really healing for me through that process was to recognize that this was very possible and it actually wasn't very difficult um because i didn't treat it like a performance um i mean obviously i did all of the normal event organizing stuff like I secured a space I secured a sound person I like I did all the things I created the handouts with little um performer bios like all the things you need to yeah. do to organize an event but I didn't go out of my way to make it a big deal um it was just we were gonna spend the bulk of our time telling stories so we had lots of quote unquote rehearsals where we did very little rehearsing and mostly just discussing and like working, workshopping people's stories. And we were, we would meet together and we would mm. practice and we would laugh hysterically. Like <laughs> it, it was, it was really cool too, to watch how many people formed friendships um, with each other. And I made a lot of friends that way too. Um, That's really neat that you had that. Yeah. I didn't realize there was that, that dimension to it. So I was picturing people, you know, on their own individually in their bedroom or at the bus stop mm -hmm. uh, writing down their thoughts and shaping how they were going to maybe tell this story, but getting to like, you have created community through mm -hmm. the preparation in, uh, mm -hmm. ahead of time of the event where they've been able to, to make those connections and to practice and to laugh. And mm -hmm. that's amazing. That's a beautiful thing. Thank you. Yeah. It was, it was so overwhelming and amazing to see how I mean mundane it was and how easy in some ways it was to just bring together this community of people and then work together to understand that even within our experiences there was variation of of how we felt about our own faith communities and learning to respect each other and make space for each other's um wounds and joy and it was a really transformative experience for me and so I would walk away each year um feeling as if I had been given a gift mm. and um I, I I deeply miss it and so one thing that I am working towards and I don't know if it will happen this year um is bringing back the coming back in out in faith monologues but understanding the context of our world. I I sat with um, wanting to bring it back for a long time. And I asked myself, 
how safe would I feel going on that stage telling my story right now, um, knowing the likelihood that an event like that would be protested? Right. And so I I recognize that for myself, I would not feel safe. And so I don't want to put that expectation or request on others in my community. If I do something like that, I want it to be of my community for my community as a chance for healing. I don't want to create a chance to put a target on our backs. Mm. And so I, I thought about the other relationships that I've developed through this process with other faith leaders, some who are explicitly affirming part of congregations that have gone through the affirming process and Mm -hmm. some who are still on that journey. And it really struck me that now is the time for those not part of the community to put their money where their mouth is and speak up. And so I am very slowly in the process of reaching out to different faith leaders across Southern Alberta to see who would be willing to talk about their journey. And I'm not really interested in the theology of it. I want to know what what was their personal journey? What was the thing that happened that just weighted the scales a little bit? And they were like, you know what? I can't be quiet about this anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that there's a lot of value in hearing faith leaders talk about that emotional journey that they took because I know that there are so many leaders of faith out there who are on similar emotional faith journeys um, and wrestling with their faith and their own theology, but are being held back by fear from making the step of publicly saying this violence is not okay. Mm -hmm. And I want to create a space for that also as a challenge in some ways Um, to challenge people who say that they are for us to show it. Can you stand on the stage for seven to eight minutes and talk about the ways in which you wrestled in yourself um, to be brave enough to say this out loud? Yeah. Yeah. It's easy. Like you said, it's easy to throw a rainbow sticker in a window. And it's fun and easy to um, paint your face and and go down and and join a summer parade in Mm -hmm. Edmonton or wherever you might be and and join a pride celebration where there's safety in numbers and, you know, you're at an event that's pride-focused and it's celebratory. But in the day-to-day mundane when it's not June and it's not, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in in the gay village and it's not at a gay bar and it's not mm-hmm. at where you're where where you have to be surrounded by people who have these extremist views that are discriminatory and hate-filled and then take a stand and say we're with you and mm-hmm. and we want to be part of this that's a different thing Mm-hmm. But I, but I think it's that's what we need. Like, how else do we get to the other side of this, where people like you can can feel zero hesitation in organizing a coming out in faith monologues and asking people to share their story in a public space? The fact that you're having to make to take a, a moment's pause and think, well, I don't know that I would feel safe doing that. That that that's um, a weather vane. That is an indicator that mm-hmm. we are in a climate right now that is 
shockingly, it, it it's a lot worse than I think a lot a lot of people realize. Yeah, that we've like we're, we're backsliding a little bit here, mm-hmm. and it's going to take something, and it's not it's going to take more than just you know having some celebrations. It's going to take some real work to to take back some of that ground mm-hmm. in creating safe space. Yeah, some of the conversations that I've had um, with people in my community are us all telling each other, yes, it's getting worse. Um, And the queer community is very good at alerting itself across the country to when things happen um, long before it hits the news. And then the conversations that I've had with others in my community who are not queer and there is a very big gap between the queer community understanding that things are getting very, very dangerous and those not part of the queer community thinking it it's just some people who are a little mad and not really recognizing how systematically um, and rapidly these things are increasing. So even though I'm a poet, I'm very much a data person and I'm a little bit obsessed with spreadsheets. So I have started a spreadsheet for myself. I can relate. I used to be so, an engineer. Yeah. <laughs> um, just sort of to um, validate what the queer community is telling itself. Um, and so I started to um, do a deep dive on the internet um, from 2020 to now, because okay. if I went back any further, it would have been overwhelming. And I'm just looking for publicly available stories. So I'm not relying on social media accounts. Um, I'm looking for news stories and police reports, anything that has some sort of verification method attached to it um, of anti-queer policy, um, vandalism. So that could be like pride flags being vandalized, um, rainbow cross box being vandalized, um, physical assaults, things that public figures are seeing um, policies that are being introduced regardless of whether they're passed or not across the country. And I have so many articles that I still need to add to my spreadsheet because I keep getting more every day. Uh, But I had entered until the beginning of June, I think. And across Canada, just what I can find as one human being sort of searching a variety of terms over and over again with each province um between 2020 and the beginning of june i have over 250 lines in my spreadsheet whoa and i have like eight tabs currently sitting open on my browser right now that need to be entered and then there's probably like another 15 stories on my phone that i need to also enter um and it's been interesting to see because I, I really like to watch data um, how in the like 2020, like there's been protests and stuff happening the whole time. But in 2020, it was largely like every single rainbow crosswalk in Canada getting vandalized um, and to see it going from every single rainbow crosswalk in Canada seemingly getting vandalized to the intensity and the number of protests, um, mostly targeting the trans community by way of drag, mm-hmm. um, 
you can you can just sort of see a progression. And so I don't know entirely what I'm going to do with this spreadsheet. Um, I know that there are organizations in Canada who have their finger on the pulse of this and they're tracking this information. But to my knowledge, there's nothing publicly available um, the okay. way there is in the U.S. where you can see things publicly. And so I am in conversations with people to see if there's a way we can share this information publicly, make it very easy to search, because I don't think that the average person would have an understanding of how much this is increasing. Um, and these are just things that happened to get a news story attached to them. There are going to be so many that didn't. Um, sure. But well, we I don't know if we're on your spreadsheet, but our so Rising Spirit Ministry is a partnership between the Basha United Church and the Pinocchio mm -hmm. United Church. And we have a rainbow sidewalk at both of our churches and mm -hmm. are on the affirming path, uh, the affirming journey uh, with our churches. Um, but we've had these rainbow sidewalks for years. And, we, and we've had them so long that we have repainted them just because they've faded mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. UV like three or four times, mm -hmm. if not more. Mm -hmm. And the Pinocchio uh, rainbow sidewalk was vandalized uh, and it was in the news. So it, mm -hmm. I think there was some uh, media people there from uh, CTV or Global, maybe both. Uh, there was a couple of articles on the web about it, but and it's and right away um, the response was in, was incredible of people wanting to come and mm -hmm. volunteer to to repaint it and to clean up the mess. And there was eggs all over the front doors. But this was mm -hmm. the day after the provincial election, mm. which I don't think it was a coincidence. But the fact that so Pinocchio is a very is is a pretty conservative community. There's a, mm -hmm. a lot of churches in Pinocchio. It's a very Christian town, and there's, you know, one or two that theologically are a little bit more um, open and accepting and affirming, where mm -hmm. most of them are leaning, are pretty left-leaning and pretty conservative-leaning. Uh, but yet, all these years that the Rainbow Sidewalk's been there, it's never been mm -hmm. vandalized before, ever, mm -hmm. until a couple weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> There are so many people who could speak um, with more authority on the increase. Um, I have my own opinions coming from the background that I came from um, and understanding some of the conversations that were being had in the 90s, um, especially when you think of big organizations like Focus on the Family I was being raised to be a soldier for Christ who would work towards creating a world where every policy erased anything that we considered to be wrong or sinful. And so I'm not at all surprised by the increase in this because if you if you've been paying attention, you can see the slow growth, the gradual erosion, bringing things into public conversation that initially people are like, oh, wow, that's that seems really far out there. But now it's in public conversation and that's how you slowly erode and change people's minds yeah. is by you start way out there, but you keep talking about it over time and maybe people aren't willing to do the thing that seemed really extreme, but they're willing to go for a less extreme version of it. And so yeah. while I am not surprised by this increase in 
really organized physical protest um, and violence. I would be lying if I said that I was not disheartened and very afraid every day. Mm -hmm. I can feel that from you, Shandy. And so yeah, I really appreciate your courage in coming on the podcast and sharing your story. Well, you. And I hope that this feels like a safe place, uh, safe space to do that. Anything I know, obviously anything that's on the internet and public, there mm -hmm. is no guarantee of like where it's going to go and who's going to hear yep. it. I mean, you've, mm -hmm. you've been uh, on the stage of a TED con a TEDx conference in Lethbridge yeah. and shared your story bravely. And, and so you're no stranger to putting yourself out there um, and and taking the risk, right? That like mm -hmm. your story going out into the world and being on the web is out of your hands mm -hmm. and out of your control. Um, and obviously that speaks to your commitment to something bigger than yourself that you are standing for um, changing, right? But well, and I also carry a lot of privilege that gives me safety that others don't have. Mm -hmm. um, I am a middle-class, white, cis, queer woman. And so I'm just not going to get the same hatred that someone else would. Right. And so I don't think that I have some preordained magical role to save my community. That would be ridiculous. I just think that I have a little bit more safety at my disposal. And so I can use it mm. to make noise about things and to bring things into the public discourse that others have been trying to do. And they are, and there are so many people that I, I respect and that I'm learning from who will never get the stage that I get. And so mm. I am trying very hard to make inroads or push so that others who have more authority can speak um, because I'm not the authority on trans issues and I am a white person. I have no way of speaking about what it's like to live in a world where we value whiteness. Um, That's important. I'm, I'm glad that you shared mm -hmm. that. And it's, it's really great that you acknowledge that, that privilege. It, to me, it's just insane that we live in a world where the you take this, you know, 10% or whatever the percentage is of our human population that is somewhere on the LGBTQ mm -hmm. um, umbrella. And so not a, not a tiny minority of people like this is a significant number of people are are whether they are out or not is completely beside the point, but like queerness is not this tiny fringe, you know, 0.001% of, of people thing. It's a, it's a lot of people. And a lot of those people are experiencing hatred or they're experiencing discrimination. And the community that is inflicting that pain is a community that claims to be about love and claims to mm -hmm. be about living uh, 
towards a life, the life that, that Jesus modeled, which was all about mm-hmm. loving everyone. And yet this is the community that is um, the, the most deliberate about trampling on trans rights or, you know, eradicating transness, eradicating queerness mm-hmm. as though it's this like disease to stamp out and, or, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I just, it makes me angry um, and it makes me sad and it makes me scared that um, when I, I, you know, the first time that I remember thinking about any of these issues was what, at about age 11 or so, realizing that my uncle was gay and not even really knowing that that was what mm-hmm. that meant until about that age. And so for the last 30 years, I've been thinking about it. But the fact that we're, like we were talking about, kind of backsliding and and, lose, and, just, and seeing things get worse in certain areas, and um, it's really frustrating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I'm really grateful that there's people like yourself who are leaders in your community um, and people like Pam and, and people like, David Hayward, the naked pastor mm-hmm. we were speaking about mm-hmm. just before starting the recording here today, who are holding space and creating community for people to have somewhere safe that they can explore their own faith and their own beliefs and maybe go through a deconstruction journey where or and try to take all the pieces apart and then integrate that into a new sense of identity that mm-hmm. holds their queerness and or just their 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 identity, their beliefs and who they are um, in an authentic way rather than, a, you know, well, we're just, this is just what we've always believed. This is what I've been mm-hmm. told to believe and, and kind of blindly following. Um, and so I, I think it's going to take, I, you know, I mean, we have a lot of churches that are dying. We have a lot of, uh, at the same time as as the, the Christian community is inflicting the most pain, there churches are also struggling, churches are disappearing. And I think a lot of that is because people are starting to question like, well, I want to really truly live true to what I, who I am and what I believe. Mm-hmm. And, and for, for yourself and for a lot of people like yourself, that sometimes means having to, to step away from mm-hmm. an organization that is built on, um, on that. So I don't know how we wrap this up, Shandy, but I, I feel like I could talk to you a lot longer. You are, you're, I just, you are so, have such a masterful way of communicating your thoughts and ideas oh, through your you. poetry and just through conversation that you are an absolute pleasure to speak with. Oh, um, thank you much. Yeah, well, I, I'm just so glad that Pam connected us and that you had some time to spend with me uh, and to join the podcast. Where would you like to send people if people are interested in learning more about your coming out in faith project? Is there something on the web that people can go to 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 see any of that? Well, or, I would or hear more about I, it. I've spent, sorry, I've spent the past few years sort of removing myself from mm-hmm. being online a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, restoring some of my anonymity because I was doing some really public facing things for a couple of years, but there are still ways that you can contact me. So uh, the best way to do that would probably by be by going to my Instagram. Yeah. Um, that is the small mailbox that I have provided the world to interact with me for the most part. 
Um, I I'm still on Facebook, but I don't, it's really just there to go on Facebook marketplace. So if you message me on Facebook, I absolutely <laughs> will not see it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I would say reach out to my, um, public Instagram. That is also where I post my poetry and I have some links there to other things that I have done. And cool. I am always excited to have conversations with people about different things that they are working on, especially when they are story-based. I love helping people tell stories. Mm. Well, we have that in common. Uh, that's my passion as well. So thank you, Shandy, again, for sharing your story here with us on the Six Ways from Sunday podcast. It was a real honor and pleasure to, to meet you and, and to hear more of your story. Well, thank you for inviting me, Ben. I've really enjoyed talking today. Awesome. Uh, and I know that our listeners enjoyed it as well. Um, for everyone out there listening, if you'd like to, uh, I mean, obviously check out Shandy's poetry. We'll have a link to that, to her Instagram handle in the show notes. Um, but I also invite people to check out some past episodes of the podcast. We had David David Hayward, uh, the Naked Pastor, with, uh, that we were talking about uh, a few minutes ago. He was on the, the podcast. Um, Pam Rocker has been on the podcast. Uh, our last episode with Victoria, uh, we spoke about um, reading with royalty and a lot of the issues facing the trans community that uh, Shandy and I also spoke about today. So uh, lots of related content uh, in the archives of the podcast that I invite people to explore. All of that can be found on our website at risingspiritministry.com and then you just click on media and podcasts. Um, and that's how you can find them. You can also subscribe to Six Ways from Sunday on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we hope that you start uh, joining us for future episodes as well. These conversations are always a pleasure for me. I, I just, I love doing these where you get to just hear people's stories. And, uh, and really, it's all about just bringing curiosity to another human's authentic lived experience of their faith journey. So uh, once again, thank you, Shandy, so much. And uh, thank you. Yeah, and everyone out there listening, until next time, take care and be well. <laughs>